A lot of discussion in our world today about taxes as we approach 42 days before Americans go and cast their lot. Uh, this is one of many topics that is on the mind of both political strategic machines as well as the consumer, the voter, the citizen about how these things affect our taxes. Um, it may surprise you, but Scripture has a great deal to say about government and taxation and how we are to live in a country, a world, where we have both a human government and the government of God our Father, the theocracy of God our King. Um, we will look at a passage today that most of you know very well. It's almost cliche to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render to God what belongs to God. But we will look at it, hopefully, with some, a little more detail and some depth and an appreciation. This is not a political sermon in one sense, but in another sense, it is a political sermon, but it's what the Scripture teaches us about how we live as citizens of two worlds. So I hope from the passage I'll show you this morning and some other passages to build a little bit of a theology of how we live under a government as well as how we live under our King, our God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is nothing new. From antiquity, there have been issues of the separation of church and state. Whether we go back to Israel's inception when he wanted a theocracy, he wanted to be the king. He didn't want them to have a human king. And you know the story, perhaps. And Samuel is interfacing as the prophet between the people and God. And they say, no, give us a king that we might be like other nations. Ay, 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 what they were asking for. So God grants them that, and of course, it's a disaster. Samuel warns them and admonishes them, he'll take your crops, your herds, your land, your sons, your money. He'll take some from you. Primarily, in antiquity, the government was established to rule, to protect the people from evil and from enemies. We know the phrase enemies uh, here and abroad, domestic and abroad. We know the phrase, the idea of we have a military power and the king is entrusted first and foremost with protecting his people, a.k.a. the government. So taxation was always an issue. And even in Samuel's day, he's going to take stuff from you to build this kingdom that you say that you want. In our own country, we forget, unfortunately, we don't teach history very well in this current context. We forget that England's tyranny, the monarchy of England, was telling people what they had to believe and how they had to believe it and taxing them into oblivion. And those people got on boats and took their life in their hands and they came to this big island to start over. In no small part for the concept of freedom of religion. So the government can't tell us what to believe. In many countries of the world, there is a government-controlled church and you can only do what the state church allows. And the fabric in many parts of the tentacles of America were built on phrases like John Adams and John Hancock. We recognize no sovereign but God, no king but Jesus. You can say they were deists. You can say whatever you will. That statement is pretty hard for me to interpret otherwise. We recognize no sovereign but God, no king but Jesus. John Adams again, cursed be all the learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. Whether they were Episcopalians or Unitarians or Mathobapterians, whatever they were. 
There was more than a deistic structure there. They believed this book to be the word of God, transcendent from the world. And they tried to shape a country, albeit a great experiment. So we have this question of how does the church live under the state? How do we as citizens of two worlds exist? We enter the discussion of morality. How many of you heard the expression, you cannot legislate morality? Raise your hand really high, really high. Okay, how many of you believe you cannot legislate morality? Put your hand way up. I would submit to you that every law is a moral law. A stop sign is a moral statement that you must stop here and look both ways lest you have an accident and hurt yourself and others. We have a law that says you can't drive while you're under the influence of illegal substances, which is you know, kind of mind-bending, or alcohol. We don't want you driving when you're drunk or influenced by drugs. That's a moral law. We've imposed a moral standard on you. You cannot do that. It's my right to drive and drink. I'm sorry, we're going to take that right away because we want to protect other, quote, innocent people from you. You've just put a moral judgment in. When you have a criminal code, an IRS code, a civil code, the government is legislating morality with every law. You will pay this or these will be the consequences. That's a moral decision. So every law from the Old Testament to today is a moral law. Now to fund those laws, you have to have a little thing called taxes. You have to take from the people you're governing to have the funds to implement the programs. So in the Old Testament, to build an army. They left their homes. They took their sons and they lived with the king's compound and they were trained as men and women of men, men of war. In our world, it's men and women. And those salaries, infrastructure, the Pentagon, the DOD, all that has to come from somewhere. They don't make a profit. They live off the taxes of the American population, state and federal taxation. Now, maybe you like or dislike the way your taxes are used. Maybe you approve or disapprove of abortion or the bailout of a corporation or funding a war. You may approve or disapprove of any of those uses. But we live in a government that once they take our money, they are empowered to do that. The same was true in the Old Testament and the New. We have this famous system of checks and balances, unlike anything on the planet, unlike anything ever. It is called the Great Experiment. And it may be coming to an end. Or it may reform itself. We have a judicial, legislative, and executive branch. The legislative makes the laws, the executive branch implements the laws, and the judicial decides where the law is interpreted and changes it from time to time when they disagree with the legislative law system. And the whole idea was that there's a whole bunch of people called the Republic who have an individual vote, the democracy, and they get to cast their lot in and say an opinion about what they think about the legislative, judicial, and executive branches. Nowhere else you get to do that. Flawed, sinful, broken, corrupt. I'm tired of the ads, too. But that's the world in which we live. Some of you know the name David Green, the CEO and founder of a place that I bet everybody knows, Hobby Lobby. Probably some of you were there this week. And if you go there, you probably go there more than once a week. Because people are Hobby Lobbyites. They like that place. And they buy, they buy gigaws, knickknacks, paddywhacks, and put them in their house. 
and on their walls, and they, it's, it's just, you know, it's Hobby Lobby, right? Great prices. You may not know that David Green is a fine believer in Jesus Christ. This week alone, he's been in the news probably more than his entire life. Forbes wrote a fabulous piece about his generosity. This guy is incredibly generous. He's given away millions of dollars. He's also in the news because he filed a lawsuit against the federal government because he doesn't like the Affordable Health Care Act. Quote, he said, we simply cannot abandon our religious beliefs to comply with this mandate, close quote. We simply cannot abandon our religious beliefs to comply with this mandate. Now, whether you think David Green is right or wrong is not the issue. The point I'm making is we have a governmental system where David Green can fight that fight. If you were under a monarchy or a dictatorship or any other kind of government, save perhaps parliamentarian rule, you're toast. You have no voice. You have no right. And David Green has the money to fight that fight. And whether he wins or not, who knows? But he's got the freedom to do it. Now, this is not a political stump speech because I'm not running for any office because I have a past. So I could never run for office. And you might disagree with some of the things I'm talking about, but I want to try to demonstrate to you that there's a biblical theology for all that I've just said. I want you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 20 as we look at this. You may disagree or agree with the rights and freedoms you have in this country, but you and I live in a world and in a context, and Jesus is going to speak, albeit briefly. We will have also other information from Old and New Testaments to illustrate the points that I want you to see. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. Please see the political language. The rule, the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak the truth correctly and that you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Notice again the political language. Is it lawful to pay taxes? Please see it clearly from the text. The question, and what we'll know is the answer here in a moment. Jesus had threatened them. The parable right before essentially said this. Jesus is going to come in and destroy their system. The Jews of that day had a religious, sociological, economical, governmental power that was incredible. In a way, they were kind of dictators of their own sort, but they were under Roman rule. Jesus says to them, because you denied the son at the parable again and again, I'll dismantle you and your entire system. And they knew correctly that he was talking about them, and they are infuriated with Christ. They've already tried to lay a couple of traps, and they're going to turn up the heat on that. And the first point of the passage is when the powerful are threatened, they attack their opponent. Just look at any current debate going on in our presidential campaign. When the powerful are threatened, you attack the opponent. And that's precisely what they do. The system was their life. 
and they didn't want it to change. So, verse 20, they watched him. They questioned him. The two phrases that carried the narrative. They watched him and they questioned him. They watched him and sent spies. The word literally means the one who lies in wait. And the word pretended to be righteous, the word pretended is hypocrinomai. Hypocrinomai. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. They're pretending to be righteous. They're lying in wait, pretending to be righteous. And they lay the trap to ask the question. And they're listening to him. They're watching him and questioning him so they can catch him. Now, verse 21 is just flattery over the top. It's just palaver. And then verse 22 is the question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for a Jew to pay a poll tax to a Roman power? Now, understand... We, we talk about, you know, the phrase occupation. If we're in a country, if we're in Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, when we were in Panama, we had an occupation there. We had troops and ambassadors, people stationed there. We are occupying a country that is unstable till they get a stable government in theory. That's the concept. Jerusalem was occupied by a Roman power of the day. Not to their liking. But the Romans let them have a certain amount of freedom as Jews under the Roman authority. Is it lawful to pay taxes to a foreign occupying power if, if we had a Russian, if Putin was over here running America, would you want to pay taxes to a Russian dictator? That's the question they're asking. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to a foreign occupying ruler? Now, if he says no, that you don't pay tribute to Tiberius Caesar, then the Romans could potentially charge him with sedition, which the Jews would love because they get Jesus out of the way. If he says yes, then all the Jewish sympathizers who have been following Christ, who like his message, are going to be disenfranchised because they don't like paying taxes to Rome. In fact, Josephus, if you're a student and you want to, you can get Josephus actually online. It's a public domain book. You can read it. It's not the kind of book you're going to read. It's a reference book. Josephus is a first century historian, unparalleled, unequaled, and he writes about Jesus and Judas and all sorts of characters. It's a little hard reading for, for many of us, but it's there. And Josephus writes extensively about this tax. And he says that when the Rome imposed the tax on the Jew, riots broke out in the streets. Have you seen any riots in the streets of late? They weren't burning Roman flags, but they were rioting in the streets because they didn't like the tax that was being imposed on them. So it's a question that is no win because if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, Rome's after him. Yes, he loses, quote, his constituency. Now, the question is nothing new. Does anybody like to pay taxes? For the record, I don't. If you do, God bless you. Pay some more. I don't like to pay taxes. No one likes government imposition. It's with a radiologist this past week. He'd been in his practice over 20 years. He said, Michael, when I got into medicine 20 years ago, I loved my job. I was helping patients. I was making a very good living. He said, I spend almost a third of my time now dealing with government regulations on what I can and can't do as a radiologist. And he was telling me some of the things that they've changed in his state. And I was, I was aghast. And I also see why so many long-term doctors are getting out of it. Because they don't want to spend all their days fighting the federal government's regulations. 
Are there good reasons for some of them? Sure. But do they understand what it does to the average doctor on the average shop in the average hospital in the average corner in the average city of the average country, uh, state? No. And it's driving men and women out of the practice instead of helping them to care for patients. Nobody likes government regulations unless it doesn't affect me. I don't mind taxes as long as you don't raise mine. That has never changed. It's an ancient problem. And when you put a politician in a yes or no corner, they have a hard time answering. That's why most people are bored with politics. They don't answer the questions. They can't. So they learn a technique called block and bridge. You block the question and talk about what you want to talk about. Well, Jay, that's a great question, but what really is the issue? And they go, yada, 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 yada. Well, Congressman, yes or no? Well, that's an important question, but you know, as I've said many times before, and off they go. And you turn the channel to sports. <laughs> You're done. Well, the man or woman running for office has a hard time saying a hard yes and hard no because they're going to lose half their constituency and they won't get elected. That's just the reality of the mess we're in. Some are better than others, but it's a hard job. Well, Jesus, the God-man, however, cannot be trapped. Verse 25, he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Jesus the Christ is not anxious. He's not concerned. He's not driven by polls. And he doesn't care one iota about public opinion. He's not running for an office. He doesn't care what the Jews think, what the Romans think, or what his followers think. He cares about always obeying his Father and everything his Father told him to do. He's in complete submission to God the Father. I always do that which is pleasing to the Father. I only do that which the Father tells me to do. And he's on a mission to just in a few days die. So he's not worried about polls. He's no candidate. He's no political wannabe. He's God. Now, even though they don't believe their flattery, verse 21 is completely true. Because he ate with Gentiles and Pharisees. He showed no partiality. He taught the way of God and truth. So all the flattery is exactly true, which is one of the first layers of irony. What's amazing to me is Jesus doesn't come out swinging. Because in other times he does with the scribes and Pharisees. When he calls them whitewashed tombs and the woes in Matthew... I mean, he, he lays it on when he wants to, when God the Father lets him, and that's the mission. But here, rather than even address their evil intent or their spying or their trapping, he says, show me a coin, show me a denarius. Now, let's look at a denarius. He asked him two questions. Whose likeness is on it? What's the inscription? The likeness of this coin, and this is a good 90-plus percent accurate of what the coinage of that day and time would be. And these coins are available. You can buy them if you're so inclined. But this was about a day's wage for a common person in antiquity when Jesus was on the planet. Tiberius Caesar is the head, and he's got the little uh, wreath on his head. And the inscription, or the legend reads, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Or, if I can paraphrase and elaborate, it's Tiberius Caesar the stepson of a god. What does it mean? He too is a god. The other side of the coin, we are not certain. 
but archaeologists and those scholars who study these believe it's Livia, which was his mother, Tiberius Caesar's mother, and she is the goddess here of peace, also known as Pax, and the inscription and legend reads Pontifes Maximus, which is translated high priest. If you came from a Catholic background, as I did, I, uh, you understand Pontifus Maximus and Pax. Pax is the cro- cross with the loop on the top, and that's the Pax Romana, the Roman cross of peace, and therefore the Roman Catholic Church. And, and of course, he is the Magnificat. He's the Pope. He speaks for God. He speaks for Christ. And that's where the imagery comes from in the language. So the question becomes now, the coin belongs to whom? Caesar. It's Caesar's head on it. So give it to Caesar is his point. But here's the real rub. If you're a Jew, do you want to take a coin that's an idolatrous coin that has a head of a picture of a man who thinks he's a god and his mother's a goddess and give that as an offering to a Roman government you think is evil and corrupt? To a pious, good, God-fearing, God-loving Jew This would be blasphemous. And that's the heart of the question. It's not just, is it lawful to pay taxes? Is it lawful to pay taxes to someone who doesn't believe what I believe, who's an idolater, we would interpret, who's going to use it the wrong way, and we're committing a kind of implicit idolatry by giving money to him. So it turns up the heat a lot more on the question, but Jesus will answer it, render to Caesar, as we'll see. Now, just one other comment. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the Hebrew shekel and the Tyrrhenian or Roman coinage of the day like this would have to be exchanged for a Hebrew shekel. Because when you went to the temple complex in Jerusalem you could only put a Hebrew shekel in the offering from the, the law's requirement for each man 20 and over. The same is true the other way. You've got to have your shekels converted to Roman coinage if you're going to pay tribute to Caesar. Because they want their, just like you don't want to come home with the euro, you want the dollar. You don't want to come home with the pound, you want your dollars back. As did the government of the day, or the worshiper of the day. And Christ answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and God's the things that are God's. Give back what is due him. Give back whose image it is on. That's, what it, that's where it goes. So give it to him. Third, the powerful are outmatched and they fall into a new trap, verse 26, and they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Literally, they are unable to grasp him. And again, like in 1948, where they're hanging onto every word, now they're amazed and they're silent. Wouldn't it have been fun to watch? This was a brilliant question. A yes-no question. And as I said in chapter 19, they probably walked away going, who thought of that dumb question? We've got to come up with a better question. <laughs> this was a genius question. But you can't joust with the master. You can't tangle with the Savior. You will always lose. If you're a golfer, you will always lose with him. Jesus will always score one hole every time he shoots. If he's the football quarterback, every Every throw is a touchdown because he's God. It's going to be fun playing racquetball with Jesus. 21 zip. Good game, Jesus. Good game. You can't outmatch the master. And they found that out. 
Four observations about Christians and government. Four observations about Christians and government. Number one, we learn a great deal about government from Christ's simple statement. We learn a lot about politics from this one little phrase. Number one, he acknowledges a civil government. Render to Caesar what Caesar's. He's acknowledging there is a government. He does not say, don't pay taxes to the local government. He's under the same Roman authority they're under at that point in their history. Secondly, he pays his own taxes. Now, albeit cleverly, some of you are fishermen, you love to fish. I don't know if you've ever gone fishing and sent that to the IRS afterwards. But Jesus goes and gets his coin out of the mouth of fish. You can do that when you're God. The rest of us have to work for it. Jesus distinguishes between man's governing ability and God's governing role. Now, listen, this first point here, even though he speaks to government existing, a civil government, Jesus does not explicitly say anything about what a Christian does when they're in moral conflict with the government. Okay? That sentence can't be taken out and made into a huge geopolitical formula. But we have other scripture, other texts, other biblical theology that does help us. Secondly, government has an ordained role. Government has an ordained role. Romans 13, the first seven verses. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. Romans 13, the first seven verses. And 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. A number of observations there. Number one, we're to be submissive to the governing powers over us. We're to pray for those in authority. We're to honor them. We're to respect them. You know, sometimes it's hard to respect those in power. We're to respect them. We're not to treat them poorly. We're to obey the laws of the land. Both passages explain that if you do nothing wrong, you've got nothing to fear. Generally speaking, when I teach my children to drive, when Cindy has taught the last two to drive, we tell them over and over and over again, if you drive the speed limit, you've got your seatbelt on, you've got your hands visible on the steering wheel, if you're not playing with your phone or have 18 kids in the car and you're behaving yourself and you're driving well, you know what? Brentwood and Franklin, and they'll leave you alone. They will leave you alone. If you're driving crazy and speeding and you have your seatbelt on, not carrying your, your license, all the things that could happen to you, and you get pulled over, you're going to pay the piper. If you obey the law, you do pretty well. Pay your taxes. Obey the law. Keep a quiet life. Work hard and diligently. The government will generally leave you alone if we respect those in authority over us. And both passages also reiterate the government is there to protect us. Now, the definition of that gets interesting. But, you know, I want them protecting us against foreign and domestic enemies. I don't know about you. I want them to protect me and my family against foreign and domestic enemies and evil. That's their job. In fact, it's God's ordained role for them, the text says. God has ordained them for such. Thirdly, When government is evil or wrong, man can choose civil disobedience. When government is evil or wrong, you have the free right to choose civil disobedience. Three examples from Scripture. One in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down to the idol, and they are thrown in the fire furnace. They don't fight off the men who come to arrest them. 
They're tied and bound and tossed into the furnace. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel refuses to pray to King Darius, and he prays to Yahweh Elohim three times a day. In public, by the way. And they arrest him according to the rule of law, of Darius's law, and he's thrown, thrown into the lion's den. Delightful story. And Darius is so worried about his friend Daniel. He runs the next morning. He doesn't sleep all night. Runs the next morning to the lion's den. Daniel, was your God able to save you? I'm okay, Darius. I don't care how tough Daniel was. That had to be a long, sleepless night. I mean, even if they yawned when they dropped you in that lion's den, I doubt Daniel ever took his eyes off those lions. If he didn't, he's a far, far better man than most of us. I don't think he slept well. The king sure didn't. Acts chapter 5, Peter and James, who are apostles of Jesus Christ to preach the gospel, are given strict orders, quote-unquote, by the Jerusalem uh, authorities not to teach or preach in his name anymore. And they keep doing it. So they arrest him and throw him in prison. And an angelic jailbreak occurs in chapter 5. Got to love it. Angel comes and breaks open the jail and they walk free. The next morning they can't find him to bring him to the council. Big, big stir goes on. All of a sudden they're out in the courtyard. They're found. They're brought before the council and they have this little exchange. And in Acts chapter 5 verse 20, Peter says, We must obey God rather than men. You cannot tell me to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Christ because that's what Christ told me to do. And I think Christ is God. Oh, actually, he is God. And I will not stop doing what God has told me to do. And you judge for yourselves what you want to do. But we're going to keep teaching and preaching Christ. All three of those are civil disobedience. And those stories waxed and waned. Now, I'm not saying run out, find some issue, and become civilly disobedient. I am saying there may come a time. There might come a time. If they come and tell us we can't do what we're doing right now with your kids in the learning center and a band leading us in worship and looking at this book that I believe is the very word of God, if they tell us we can't do that, I will lead the civil disobedience because that's what men died for was the freedom to do this. Fourth, when government is evil or wrong, man can also appeal through those very same laws. When government is evil or wrong, man can also appeal through those very same laws. One of the, it seems to me, neglected stories in Acts 22 is very enlightening on this point. Paul is bound in chains and being carried through, uh, I think, to the Antonia Fortress, if I remember correctly, and they're about to beat him. And he says to the guard, um, translated, paraphrased, you can't do this without due process. That's, that's what we would say. He says, I'm a Roman citizen. The guard drops dead in his tracks. And he says to Paul, I got my Roman citizenship by a large sum of money. And Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. This guy is now on alert. He's afraid for what they've done by arresting a Roman citizen without due process. It would not be unlike today if an officer racially profiled a person that was doing nothing wrong and put him in handcuffs and beat him with a nightstick. You cannot do that without due process. And that Roman guard is not just fearing punishment, he's fearing execution. So Paul, in Acts 22, says, I'm a Roman citizen. What's my point? He used 
the right that he had as a citizen of Rome to say, wait a minute, you can't do this to me without due process. And we have an even greater privilege here as American citizens. They cannot, you're not guilty until proof such. Now, miserable experience it would be to go through that process you live in a country that has that freedom. And so you have the freedom, as David Green does, as the CEO and founder of Hobby Lobby, to say, time out. I disagree on a lot of legal grounds. You can't impose a regulation on me that conflicts with my religious beliefs. Whether you agree or disagree with David Green is not the point. My point is simply he has the right and freedom to use the government because he's a citizen of a checks and balances system And this is one of a thousand reasons you need to vote. Because he's still got that right. And he's got the money because he lives in a free enterprise system where the guy did well. And oh, by the way, he pays 30% more to his hourly workers than anybody who employs hourly workers. He gives everybody Sundays off. He treats his employees like you wouldn't believe. He gives tons of money away. And he's hugely successful. Oh, by the way. I don't know if he'll win or lose. But I'm glad he has the freedom to try. Our text is saying that powerful religious leaders tried to trap the Messiah and failed. And in their trickery and their question, we learn a little bit about Jesus' view of government. That he affirms his existence and he affirms through other biblical theology passages, many we could look at, that there's a time that you can civilly disobey, you may lose, all kinds of things, but they are dealing with the master and they are overmatched. So what? I believe they asked the wrong question when they asked the tax question. And I think we can fall into the trap of asking the wrong question too. So what? Two questions for you. Number one, does Jesus Christ ever leave you speechless? We come to the Word of God with lots of complex problems in our life and we read it And has it become a boring, ancient, thick, dull book that no longer motivates or interests us? I can can watch politics, you know, till I I don't know why I do it, because I'll watch the news from, I tape it, and I'll watch the hour news in 37 minutes, because I go through all the teases and commercials and tags, and I watch the core news I want to watch, and I might watch the next three news shows that all talk about the same things. I, I can waste a whole night, and my blood pressure's up here. And I'm yelling at the TV. And most of you, after the first five minutes, go to turn to sports. There's something a little more fun to yell at. And I go, where's my passion for Christ at his word? This, this life is fog on a mirror. And the next is eternal. And just as we saw in chapter 19, they were hanging on every word he said. Here, they're silent. You can feel it in the room. No one's got anything to say. They've been outmatched by the king. Second, so what? What do you render to God? You see, their question was, is it proper to pay taxes to Caesar? And that's the dust-off question. Render to Caesar what Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. My question for you is, what is God's? I cannot answer that for you. But you must answer it for yourself. 
what are you rendering to God? I get sucked up in the horizontal too. The job, raising the kids, saving the money for the college funds, my retirement plans, my health. I get, I get, I get caught up completely in the horizontal of life. How do we reframe, reform, transfer it to say, my life is a rendering to God, not just a plan of financial security and a future for my children, a hope for good health when I'm old enough that they're finally gone. You and I were illegitimate, depraved, throwaway, trash-collecting, disgusting sinners that he called, that he adopted, that he knew by name before the foundation of the world. He said, you're mine. And he sent Christ to make a way for us to be called the sons and daughters of God, children, heirs of an eternal kingdom, one that worries not about health care or finances or performance or success or the number of children you will have or your health or how long you will live or what home you will build or where you'll vacation or what car you will drive or how many grandchildren you may have. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What are you rendering to him.